This book is a book about God's heart and His compassion and His desire for missions. And I think that if that's God's desire, I think that needs to be our desire. And so this morning, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. This will be more of an introduction than just a straightforward exposition, but an introduction to the text that we're going to be covering, and I think that it's an introduction that is pastorally driven. Um, I think I want to drive you to the implied application of where we're going to go in chapter 4 of Jonah. Next time we will gather and I will begin going through in a very detailed way through chapter 4, but today will be an introductory exposition, I guess you could say. So let's pray, and then we'll go to uh, Jonah. Father God, I, I come to you in the name of Jesus, the great missionary, the one who had the greatest God-exalting compassion in the world. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for that mercy that you brought and revealed to us personally. God, it's that mercy that I believe you have shown us that we need to reflect to the world and to our friends. And it needs to move us, I think, this morning as I think about what you have done and what you have revealed to us in Jonah, your desire for the Ninevites, these pagan Gentiles who are outside of the covenant people of God, yet God, you had chosen them from before the foundation of the world to hear a message that would bring about repentance and faith in their hearts to give you glory so that they would be a light to Israel who should have been a light to them. Father, as I think about that and that application, Israel was chosen and set apart as a nation to reflect your grace and mercy to unbelievers. God, that is exactly what you've called your church to do today. So I pray that we would hear that message. We would receive that message. We would apply and pursue that message that you have given us, that we are to not just exist for our own sake and our own comfort and our own exaltation, but for your glory and for the good of those who need compassion. I pray that you would apply that to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open God's word with me to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to begin in Jonah 3, 6. And we're going to read down through 4, 6 to have a contextual understanding of the text we will actually focus on, which will be verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Let me read God's word to you this morning and, and see how you respond. See if you reflect the heart of Jesus or Jonah here as you hear this text. And I pray that, and I believe that, you will desire the heart of Jesus, not the heart of Jonah, and how he responds to God's compassion to unbelievers. This is after Jonah goes, after he's been brought up from the belly of the fish and recommissioned to go. And he takes his duty and he goes and he proclaims the message of God's doom on this wicked city, and then God did a miracle. And we see that miracle take place through the proclamation of His Word. 
And we see it begin from the least to the greatest. And so we here move from the people in the street in verse 5 to verse 6. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let him not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Chapter four is an enigma at first when you come to it. It seems like a puzzle. A man who had been given so much mercy wants to withhold it from others who are in need of it. He's angry. He's angry, notice, at God. He becomes God's judge in chapter 4 in his twist of strange, distorted irony. If, if a man wrote the Bible, if men wrote the Bible and it wasn't inspired by God, men would stop at the end of chapter 3. They wouldn't go on to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a testimony to the inspiration of Scripture. Only God would write a book about this man's failure. God wrote this book, this narrative, this testimonial of Jonah's actual experience to teach us a lesson. God wrote this to teach us a lesson about God's God-exalting compassion. God's God-exalting compassion towards sinners. That's why this book was written. That's the central theme and hub of the book. It culminates in chapter 4. 
And, and we see this great miracle of mercy and compassion throughout the book. There we see our gracious, compassionate God call Jonah. Right. Calls him and Jonah ends up rebelling against him. Yet God does something to protect him. And then God corrects him in chapter two and then God recommissions him in chapter three. He restores the relationship and the, the peace that he had with God in that sense. And then he sends Jonah to proclaim a message, and a message that, frankly, was not exactly seeker-sensitive or popular. It was a message of doom and destruction, which I think that Jonah gladly picked up. He liked that part of it, because he could proclaim it to his enemies. But what he didn't like was the but God part of the message. Jonah went and proclaimed doom and destruction, but God granted faith, granted repentance, and forgiveness. And in that man's ministry to the city, in one day, approximately 600,000 people were saved. It's the greatest revival in the Bible that we see. And it exalted the great compassion of God. That, I think, is what we're called to do as Christians. We don't live unto ourselves. We live, I believe, according to Scripture, to exalt the great compassion of our God. That's what Jonah needed to understand. It wasn't about Israel and it wasn't about Jonah's ministry. It was about God's great mercy. So two and three lead us to this great revival and and great gift of God's restoring mercy. And so we would expect when we come to chapter four that there should be a God exalting praise and prayer and proclamation of God's greatness and kindness towards sinners. And we certainly find Jonah praying in chapter four, but that's not the kind of prayer that we hear, is it? Jonah's prayer doesn't reveal a heart filled with God-exalting praise for his mercy toward his enemies. A lot of things, man, there's so many applications of this that I could think about this morning. Um, One of the things we need to remember, who are we to say people are our enemies? Who are we, the mercied people of God, to say that we have a right to hold grudges against anybody We who have been forgiven so much. And Jesus, who displayed this God-exalting compassion, saved us. If we're not not exalting God through reflecting His compassion, I think we've missed our mission. I think we've missed the purpose in our regeneration. Frankly, Israel was a light to the nations. A city set on a hill, so to speak. And then the New Testament tells us that that's us. We, we are the light. We are the city set on the hill. And that means we as a church and we as individuals. We declare the mercy of God through our life and through our lips. So in Jonah, we see, we see a prayer that reveals something about what's in Jonah's heart and what's in Jonah's desire. In in Jonah 4, 1 through 2, Jonah's prayer reveals something about him. It reveals one point. The self-exaltation that was hidden in Jonah's heart. 
See, I read a lot of commentaries. I read a lot of theories about why Jonah says what he says in verses 1 and 2. A lot of them said, well, he was zealous for the glory of Israel. He was zealous for the glory of God. Yes, on the surface. But ultimately, he was in rebellion against his God down deep in his heart. He had, he had a root sin of self-exaltation. The other parts, the running from God in chapter 1, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the actual problem. And see, that's the thing with us. We, we have tips of the iceberg sticking out everywhere. And down deep, if you look down deep, and sometimes when things happen like this, when God does something great for our enemies, it exposes what's deep in our heart. I mean, one set of notes that I had written up yesterday said something like this. How would you feel if when you arrived in heaven, you meet Osama bin Laden? He's been forgiven, let's say. Would you rejoice? Well, what if you met him Two years ago, and he'd been forgiven. Would you rejoice? Or would you demand justice? See, when we're faced with the reality of what God does, it often points out what we have deep in our heart and what we really truly love and desire. Do we really want our enemies saved, or do we like holding a grudge? Because if we do, we're like Jonah, and we have self-exaltation. We think that we know better about what God should do to them than God does. That's what's going on, I think, in Jonah this morning. Jonah's prayer reveals the self-exaltation hidden down deep in his heart. His exaltation drove him to judge God, God's purposes. It drove him to separate from others. It drove him to rest in his own comforts. That's what we see in chapter 4. As you read down through there, he does all that. He judges God's purposes. He separates himself from those he was called to minister to. You ever notice? One day in, they're converted. He's got 39 days to disciple and train them. And what's he do? He separates, waiting for their destruction. Hoping they'll mess up. And God will kill them anyway. And then he rests in his own comfort. He rejoices. And there is gladness, finally, in the book of Jonah, when God does something good for him. It's all self-exalting Worship of himself here. And today, what I want you to see in, in chapter 4, as just a, a glimpse and then an application, a glimpse of, as an introduction to what we're going to cover next time, is that self-exaltation, this would be a point you could write down, self, self-exaltation distorts. It distorts our reasoning and it distorts our actions. Our reasoning and our actions are distorted by self-exaltation. Now, they're redeemed by God-exaltation. God-exalting compassion, that changes our thinking and it changes our doing, our application. Now, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. We're just going to look at these first two verses. I'm going to break down verse 2 into two parts for just a minute so we can look at that. But first, let's look at verse 1. We can see here how... Self-exaltation distorted Jonah's reasoning, his mind, his thinking. And listen, he's a converted prophet of God. And this is still going on in his heart. So this tells me we need to heed this warning. He was the mouthpiece God chose. And guess what? In the New Covenant, so are you. It was possible for this to happen to him. It's possible for this to happen to you and I. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now that's just, this is probably one of the most frightening passages in the Bible to me. 
Aside from maybe Matthew 23 when Jesus lays down the woes on the Pharisees, which is exactly kind of who Jonah represents here in this passage. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him exceedingly? God's compassion to Nineveh. God's compassion to others that actually made him look bad. It wasn't what he wanted. He was angry. You have to understand something about Jonah. Jonah, the only other recording we have of his his prophecies or his ministry was one that brought him great glory in Israel. He talked about how God would restore the borders and it happened. And all of a sudden he becomes a rock star preacher. He becomes the hit. He becomes the man. And he is riding the top of the wave. Then he has this call from God that's going to actually destroy his potential ministry in Israel. Because he knows what God's like intellectually. He just doesn't want anyone else to know it experientially. What it says here in the original Hebrew, basically a literal translation of verse 1 is this. This is just frightening. But it, God's compassion. God's compassion was evil to Jonah. God's compassion was a great wickedness, and Jonah was burning inside because of it. A straight rendering from the Hebrew says, but it was evil to Jonah, a great wickedness, and he was burning. Self-exaltation was buried in this man's heart deeply. And God's compassion to his enemies brought it to the surface. That's what we see going on here. He had this from the very beginning. He didn't want to go where God called him to go because he wanted to be exalted above God's decisions. He wanted his name to be proclaimed in Israel, not in these pagan enemy cities. What Jonah's doing here in verse 1, he's saying this basically. God, the reason I'm angry is that you sent me here to do what shouldn't have been done to begin with. It's your fault that I feel angry. He is blame shifting. He's saying my anger, my sinful rebuke of you comes because of what you did in the first place. My enemies are not worthy of salvation. They're worthy of destruction. You see how his reason was distorted? He is in the face of God who had rescued him, had expressed mercy to him, had expressed mercy to Israel. Israel had lived at this point at least 150 years in complete unrepentance. And in one day, Nineveh is converted and repents. Jonah's ministry looked like it was a rebuke against Israel. And it was. Jonah knew this. And he says, God, you shouldn't have done this. It's your fault that I feel this disgust right now. Now think about this. Do we reason like that sometimes when we exalt our will above God's, our decisions above God's decisions? When we are hurt by our enemies and we refuse to forgive them and go out to them and reach out to them with mercy, do we reason like Jonah? They don't deserve salvation. They deserve destruction. Or do we reason like Jesus? Look what Luke says. Luke 6. Luke 6, 27. But I, this is Jesus speaking. But I say to you, here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, we can do that. 
We can do that by the Holy Spirit's empowering and God's revelation here. We can do that, and we can also do that because of what God's already done for us, because we were in that category. We were God's enemies. He did good to those who hated Him. He blessed those who cursed Him, and He prayed for those who abused Him. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not hold, withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so or do so to them. See, the life of the child of God, we live in two kingdoms. One has authority over the other. And we are to be distinct and different, and our actions should reflect supernatural mercy. See, when we cling to our own rights, cling to our own exalted position of what we think we deserve, we, we are saying that this world is our home. We are saying, I don't need to look forward to the one that's to come. But when you can let go of your pride, your self-exaltation, and your self-comfort for the sake of glorifying your God who had great compassion, then God says, you will reflect me. You will be blessed by God. You will be reflecting that in the world around you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Verse 32 says, for even sinners love those who love them. I mean, if you do that, you're, you're nothing more, you're, you're nothing more of a, than a reflection of the unregenerate people around you. Your life should be distinct as a Christian. And listen, the people he's talking about in those previous verses, they aren't nice people. They're their enemies, the enemies of Israel, Roman soldiers, people who would persecute them, crucify Jews in the street, massacre them. He's saying if they strike you, give your life for the sake of the glory of the one who was stricken for you. Verse 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You'll be you will be sons of the most high, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Don't extend something to someone who has hurt you because you desire to get something in return. That's like the pagans do. What exalts God is agape toward those who are not worthy. Extending something to them that they have need of but don't deserve. That's what we're called to do. That removes us from this position of thinking that we should have an exalted life as Christians. Rain on the Osteens of the world, those who say that this, this is our best life now. This is not our best life now. Our best life is in Christ and He is seated in heavenly places. And we're there with Him. We need to be living like we belong in that kingdom. That's what separates us. And that would have protected Jonah from self-exaltation because he would have been concerned about the exaltation of God and his compassion. And God's going to teach this to, to Jonah. And I hope God teaches that to me and to you. Now, go back with me to Jonah. Jonah 2a. Here we see that self-exaltation distorted not just Jonah's attitudes and his 
demeanor, but continue to point out that it distorted his reasoning, his thinking. Look what 2a says. We'll stop about midway through here. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? And the emphasis here is in my country where I belonged. I told you. And it wasn't like he, he prayed then. It was more like he just made this pouty statement. I'm not going because I know what you're like. So I'm going to run. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. See, he's, his reasoning is distorted. He's, again, he's blame shifting. He's casting the, the problem onto God's shoulders, not his own. He's not taking responsibility because he is too exalted in his own eyes to have done wrong. He is justifying his sin. And that's what self-exaltation will do to us. When you think you deserve something in this life, you're exalting yourself above God's judgments. What about all our brothers and sisters who are being martyred for the name of Jesus? And we're complaining about being nice to our neighbors or in-laws. We don't deserve the kindness we've received. It is the gift from our God. This country and this blessing of being here in freedom is God's mercy. What Jonah's saying here in effect is this in verse 2. I knew that this was your plan all along. I knew that you planned to rescue these wicked people. And so I judge you as guilty for making me do wrong, for making me have a bad attitude. I judge that you should now destroy this wicked people so you would protect your name, your people, and my reputation. That's really what he's saying. And again, really, that's just a, a, a masked attempt to cover his main desire, which is his own exaltation, his own decision, his own judgment reigns in his mind, over God's judgment of what should happen to the lost. And in essence, what Jonah is saying is basically something again like this. How dare you, God? How dare you shame Israel and waste my time? How dare you send me out to a city that I know you're going to grant repentance and mercy to, and you make me look like a fool proclaiming destruction? How dare you do this to me? I am too important for you to do this and waste my time. That's his attitude, I think, that's coming out. It's, it's, it's masked in nationalism and in religious ideology here, but it's at the very root, it's, a, it's an attitude of self-exaltation. He's not really concerned about the people here. He's not really concerned about God's glory. He's concerned about his glory, his position, the way people view him. And man, that should teach us something, I think. Sometimes we don't do what we know we ought to do because we simply don't want other people to think poorly of us or think that we're religious zealots. Listen, you have, you have a short time on this planet. We're a vapor. And if you've got lost loved ones, I don't care how foolish you think you will look. It is worth every fiber in your body to proclaim with all your heart the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Because listen, and I know this, they can be gone in an instant. And you'll never regret telling them about Jesus. No matter how foolish you think you look. No matter how hard the message may be. No matter how difficult it may be to approach them. It is worth the effort for the glory of God's name. And for the good of the lost who are dying. Listen, I'm not... I'm not God. I don't know who is elect and who's not. 
But I know this, Jesus had a passion and compassion. He had a passion for God's glory, and it was reflected in his compassion for the dying world around him. I don't see Jesus making a distinction in the way he treated Judas as opposed to Peter. He loved him to the end, though he knew he was a devil. He was an apostate. If Jesus did that, I think we should follow his example. Jonah wasn't concerned about people or God. A lack of mercy is a good indication that there's self-exaltation in your heart. Now, self-exaltation, it distorts our reasoning, and that in turn shapes and changes our actions. Verse 2b shows us how self-exaltation distorts our actions and distorts our application of God's word. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, the key word in this passage is I knew. In the Greek, we could translate that. I had gnosis. I have knowledge. And it's not necessarily and it is in his case, but he doesn't necessarily mean it as experiential knowledge that I've received all this. And I'm thankful for it. Rather, he's saying, I know the attributes of God, okay? I know what the Bible says in Exodus. I know how it defines God. He had a technical understanding of what God was like, and that's good. We need that. But it's got to move beyond that. Self-exaltation will distort that, and that's what happens here. It distorted his application of God's word. He no longer viewed that declaration that he just made as something glorious. He is now viewing it as something horrible because it's been extended to his enemies. So in 2b, his knowledge here sounds an awful lot like what we read about in 1 Corinthians. Go there with me. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. This This seems to be the kind of knowledge that I think Jonah is expressing. In 2, 8 and verse 1. Now, this is in a somewhat different topic, but the end here, this application is what I want you to understand. Now, concerning food to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, okay, gnosis. But gnosis or knowledge alone, knowledge alone, bare facts, truth, apart from application in the heart, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge will... Build up your own view of yourself. I am a theologian. I know about supralapsarian and infralapsarianism and the reformed doctrine of justification. That will puff you up. But if you don't do something with those truths that I just said, then you are no more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You have not love. Love will edify others with the knowledge that you have been given. Jonah's knowledge, I think, sounds like this. I think it sounds like the knowledge that puffs up. Knowledge alone can lead all of us to self-exaltation. And that may be our very temptation in this text today. We as a church, as a Reformed Baptist church, we understand doctrine is important. We understand that duty is important. Truth is important. And we understand that evangelism is important. But do we approach it like Jonah, technically, Or do we approach it like Jesus passionately? How do we approach it? Do we attend worship services out of a duty alone? 
I'm not saying there's not duty. There's duty to get you here. Planning. Dedication. But do we approach a worship service as an act of duty alone? Or do we delight in coming together with God's people to rejoice in His Word and to build up one another in love? See, the church comes together, according to Ephesians 4, to build up one another for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. We come, we gather, we worship, we rejoice, then we equip and we send out. We love one another in fellowship. But it has a divine purpose. It's not just bare facts and truth. And Lord, forgive us as theologians when we exalt our mind above your will. When we, when we know the will of God, it will affect the theological truths we have in our hearts. And it will move us out of the bare theological facts into a loving, compassionate act of grace where we reach out to those who are lost. We proclaim truth as if their lives depended on it and God's glory was exalted in it. Do we attend Bible studies, midweek Bible studies, to boast in this knowledge? Or do we come here to rejoice in the work that Christ has wrought in our hearts and then apply it practically in the way we reach out to those who we invite to come here on a Wednesday or a Sunday? Or do we evangelize simply to fulfill the Great Commission alone? It's just, this is a command, I've got to fulfill it, it's my duty, I'm a Christian, that's why I evangelize. Or do we evangelize as a way to exalt Jesus Christ? And have mercy on the perishing. I was reminded this week about how important this is. To have passion for the glory of God. That's moving us to application. And not get puffed up in just our theological dimensions. And depth. I had a man call me this week and befriend me over the phone. And he called me with tears in his eyes as he began to weep about, brother, I've been to so many churches and either they're cold and indifferent and they're theologically sound, they have no love for the lost or the glory of Jesus, or they're as Arminian as can be and they're living as if the world was part of the church and they don't deal with sin and I just need to find a church that loves God and loves people. And he wept and he wept. And as we talked, we both wept and we rejoiced that God does grant churches like that to be a light, to reflect the great compassion of our God to the world by taking truths that we study and putting them into application so that it's not just sacrifice, it's rejoicing that drives us. We don't come here just out of duty. We come here out of a delight, and it's a delightful duty to come here. To delight in our Savior. Jesus died to put you in the church so that you could reflect Him in the world. We need to rejoice in that. I was also reminded of how important this is when I got a message from a guy from I went to high school with. He sent me a Facebook invite. I haven't seen this man since we were seniors in high school. My heart broke when I read his information. He's been living as a homosexual for years. And I don't know if anyone's told him about forgiveness and transformation that comes through Jesus. 
I thought, God, forgive me for not being considerate and thinking like I ought about this man. Because I'm going to tell you, the first response when I read how he was living, it wasn't God-exalting. It was self-exalting. God rebuked me immediately. And he brought about a compassion in my heart that came from above, not from within, on my own. Jonah, Jonah had duty. He had that down. When God rescued him, he did what he said. He knew he was called to be a prophet. He boasted in this text about his knowledge of God. He had knowledge. And he fulfilled the exact requirements that God gave him when he restored him in chapter 3. But self-exaltation kept him from the key element of ministry, which is God-exalting mercy. He was like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They got all the requirements of the law right, but they had forgotten mercy. They knew what God was like, but they didn't like God extending that grace to others outside of themselves. That's why they separated and segregated and came inward and inward. And God forgive us and keep us from that attitude. I heard John MacArthur one time talk about a group of guys who gathered together. And it was a great church at the beginning. And they've been together for a long time. And they begin to gather. And they begin to study Reformed theology and Reformed theology. And he said until finally all they could do is come together and contemplate their Calvinistic navels. And they never went out and did anything with it. God protect us from that. The man that I spoke to that was crying and weeping, he came out of a church like that. And he was frightened that all churches who stood firm on doctrine would be like that. And he began to, this is to the glory of God, he began to listen to sermons and read stuff on our website. And he began to say, God, there's hope. There's hope. And he found a church 30 minutes away this week to attend. That does just this. It exalts God's compassion and teaches deep truth. I think God reveals Jonah's heart in 4.2 as a warning to us. And this is where it gets to the application part for you and I. I want you to ask yourself some questions. We're going to look at a few more texts, but think about this. Ask yourself a question. Does self-exaltation... And self-righteousness distort your application of God's revealed word. In other words, do you have compassion for the world around you? Or are you content and happy in your comfortable, exalted position? Do you think that going to my enemies would be a waste of time? They probably won't believe anyway. They're, not, they're probably not elect, so I better not go to them. It'll be a waste of my time. Woe to you, Jonah. That was Jonah's heart. It's basically saying, if I don't want to go to my enemies, and if I refuse to go to my enemies, if I say it's too hard to go to my enemies, that means I can judge God as making a mistake and calling me to salvation and commissioning me to go to my enemies. I know better than God where my ministry ought to be. That's what we're saying. That's what Jonah was saying. Do we sound more like Jonah or Jesus? Jesus' life was spent showing mercy, pity to his enemies. There wasn't a person on the planet 
that he encountered that wasn't his enemy. And there wasn't anyone in this room that has been encountered by Jesus that wasn't his enemy. He's still showing pity to sinners. And he does it now through the manifestation of his glory in his church and through his people. Does your theology, your doctrine, does it move your emotions? You know, I... I love deep theology, and you guys know that. I am as reformed as you can find me in the Baptist world. It's, this is as reformed as I can be. We don't dunk babies here, okay? That, so we refuse to do that. But we're reformed all the way around. But here's the thing. I have been in so many reformed churches and heard so many reformed preachers over the years who lacked any deep compassion or mercy or emotion when they talked about the gospel and justification. That's shameful. Our hearts need to be moved emotionally. You have right doctrine, you'll have right emotions. Jesus had right doctrine, and Jesus had real emotions. Aren't you glad? His doctrine drove him to the cross where he cried out for you and me. Where he declares, the work of redemption is finished. I've done it for those who are my enemies. Look what Hebrews 5 says about Jesus. Hebrews 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7-9. In the days of His flesh, His incarnation, God the Son took on flesh, became a man like us in every way without, except without sin. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. What with? With, with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Jesus' reasoning and Jesus' prayers and Jesus' actions revealed God-exalting compassion for the lost. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he falls on his face and begins to weep, and then he begins in Luke's account to talk about how he begins to pray and then sweat drops of blood. He's hemorrhaging. He is praying and crying out to God for us on our behalf and to, to take this cup of wrath for us in our place to the degree that he's, he's worn out physically and his body is falling apart. I mean, do we pray like that for our unbelieving and unsaved friends who are yet in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus? Do you weep over the lost? I should weep more. We should weep like Jesus I want you to think about this. When, think about this. Not in a dutiful fulfilling of the Great Commission alone thought, but think about it in this way. When was the last time you were actually and truly, emotionally, biblically moved to compassion to proclaim the glory of God in evangelism? When, when was your heart broken over this person sitting across from you, working across from you, living across from you, living in your home, living as your in-law or your relative? When was your heart so broken by what they need to know about the glory of Jesus and they need for their salvation that you actually went to them and proclaimed the gospel that saved you? We need to do that. I want to help you do that. I want you to think biblically about that. I want you to think practically about that so that you exalt God and not yourself. I'm going to give you a way to be encouraged by that. I'm going to read to you another quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who always, every, every sermon the man preached, every Calvinistic sermon the man preached, he drove hard to the cross and he pleaded with sinners to repent and believe in Jesus. He was as evangelistic as any man could be on this planet, save Jesus. 
Listen to what he said. Maybe this will help you develop in your heart what Jesus has accomplished, which is perfect mercy and great mercy for sinners. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, employing them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We should show no less concern for the lost than our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus entered into a world of sinners to reveal God's mercy personally. Should we not go personally also and point them to the source of our mercy? Whether they believe or not, all men have benefited from this mercy. Life on this globe revolves because of God's mercy. Breath in the rebel and praise in the saint both flow out from God's mercy. Should not we who breathe in his mercy not proclaim it from our hearts with our mouths and with our compassion for the lost and dying around us? Should we not? Now, by no means do I want to discourage you this morning if you're not doing this. I want to equip you. I want to encourage you. I want to walk with you as you grow in this. And I want to pursue this myself because I believe scripturally speaking, when you read the the whole counsel of God, God is most glorified in his church. when We are moved into action by the revelation of God's mercy toward us and through grace-driven compassion for the lost. I think God receives the most praise. Evangelization of the world brings glory to God. That's the point. We're proclaiming the work of His Son. We're glorying in His mercy and His grace. And all men are held accountable to Him for that. We don't save them. We are faithful to exalt Him, though, with great compassion. I don't think it needs just to be theologically driven. It needs to be theologically driven to the heart so that the heart would respond with compassion for the lost. Listen, Jonah had no clue that Nineveh was elect. Not by the way they looked. And not until God wrought repentance and faith in their heart did he know that. And we don't know it either. We preach Christ, the hope for sinners. We talk about Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who brought us mercy. And in that, God's glorified, the church is edified, and the world's evangelized. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. Listen, I, I want to say this as a pastoral note to you personally here. I, like I said, I don't want to discourage you. I don't think that you're failing in these areas. What I want to do is I want to prepare you and I have the responsibility to equip you and to hold you accountable and me accountable to apply these truths. But I, I want you to know this. I believe that you, Sovereign Grace, are the most loving, interpersonal church I've seen. I think that you are theologically driven. I think you are Christ-exalting. I think I see that on Sundays when you're hungry for the word and you listen to me for an hour. I think I see it on Wednesdays when you come and you research and you study and you learn and you fellowship afterwards with one another. 
But it's possible for us to fall into the danger, the dangerous area of self-exaltation, just like Jonah. It's possible for our love and our truth to become trapped inside these self-exalting walls. Where we become focused on just our congregation, which is important. We need to grow together in love and edify one another. But we can come together to such a point that we are not applying this truth to the world around us that God planted us in. I want to help you do that because there's a need out there, according to Matthew 9. Go to Matthew 9. There's a need to take what we love and the truth that we learn and apply it outside these four walls to keep us from the trap of self-exaltation and to put God on display in the world. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus make this obvious truth clear to his disciples. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, notice, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's his harvest. Notice, right? His harvest. His people are the ones who are to go out into it to get what he is desiring, which is his glory revealed in the world through the redemption of sinners and the proclamation of his name and his grace. And, and I believe that's the heart that you have. I believe that's the heart of our church. But I want us to make sure that we have the compassion of Christ. Do we look around at the harassed and the hurting and the helpless? And do we see them as enemies or do we see them as sheep without a shepherd? I mean, do you look at that one person in your life that is a constant irritant? Who you think cannot be forgiven, cannot be granted grace. They're too hard hearted. Do you look at them and think they need Jesus? Because apart from God's mercy, I would be just like that. But look what God did to me. I'm like Paul. I'm the chief of all sinners. But look what he did to me. That should drive you to mercy. And I want that to that that, that what I what I see in your lives theologically and what I see in your lives practically. I want that to pour out onto our city and in our families and to our friends as a church, because we have something greater than Jonah had. Jonah's message was one of wrath to come. We have the hope of repentance and forgiveness of sin that comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have a greater message than Jonah. And if we do not use our lives to share it, we are exalting our views and our judgments above God's. God's judgment was he called us to salvation so we would proclaim his name to the nations. And if we do not do this, if we do not share our lives with those around us, we exalt our judgment above his. We determine who needs this message and who needs our witness. And we reject his revelation to go into all the world and proclaim the name of Jesus to Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, heterosexual, homosexual. And do it with compassion and show mercy when you're dealing with their sin because you are a sinner saved by God's mercy. If you believe that God the Father is worthy of praise, and that God the Son is mighty to save sinners. And that God the Holy Spirit has equipped us with His Word and His presence. We should be weeping 
over the lost and going to our city and proclaiming the message of Christ. We should be declaring to them that which brings God the most glory, and that is the revelation of His Son. Look at Mark 10. We'll end with this this morning. Mark 10. This is our message. And I love what, the way this ends. It doesn't tell you how many. It just says many. Look what it says. Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Then verse 45. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the one we serve. And the one we serve came to serve those who are in need of mercy. And we betray him if we do not reflect him. If we do not act like him and think like him, reason like him and apply God's word like him, we betray our Lord and he is Lord. And if we call him Lord, we need to do what he says. And I think that God will drive us to do that as we go through and finish Jonah, because we'll see the importance of showing mercy. Father God, again, our prayers come to you through the merits and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It is through the redeeming work that he accomplished by coming into this world to live a perfectly righteous human life in our place and then to be judged by you on the cross as guilty for our sins and receive our complete penalty in your wrath and fill up the entire wrath that we deserved in a moment on the cross and then die and then rise again on the third day to declare that we are just and that he is all powerful. And we are secured in Him for eternity. God, You have done this. You have revealed this truth to us out of Your sheer, gracious, and powerful mercy. God, please teach us this morning to apply that to our own life and ministry. Let us see the cross with new eyes this morning. Let us see the mercy that was extended to us through Jesus as the mercy we want to reflect to the world around us. God, make me merciful, I pray. God, protect me because I too often look like Jonah and not like Jesus. I exalt myself above your will often. For that I need forgiveness. For that I need direction. And thank you for Jonah because that's what you're doing. You're directing you're washing us in your word. And we pray that you would be glorified in that in Jesus' name.